Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, my name's Stuart Marza, and welcome to the Pocket Podcast. Warner Brothers has been detailing more on Hogwarts Legacy, the open-world RPG that's set in the 1800s, long before the birth of Harry Potter and even Newt Scamander. Hockelint's Rick Henderson joins me to tell us all the details. Meanwhile, I've been catching up with the Chief Operating Officer at Verify My Age to find out how the company is trying to make the internet a safer place. And Pockelint's Luke Baker has been filming with the Insta360 ONE RS action camera to see if it has what it takes to take on GoPro. Stay tuned to find out. But first, back to you, Rick. Tell us more about the Wizarding World's announcement. Yeah, indeed. Harry Harry Potter's... Well, it's not Harry Potter game. Harry Potter's nowhere near it. But Hogwarts Legacy is incredibly exciting. Um, we've waited for quite some time. It was announced uh, a good year or so ago. Um, yet, um, we've now just had over 14 minutes of gameplay and details drop during the latest PlayStation State of Play address. And... Uh, no matter how old you are and no matter how much you like or or are ambivalent about Harry Potter, this is looking like a great game. Um, it basically is an open-world RPG, as you said at the, at the start, but it's mm. way bigger than we could have imagined. It um, You are a new student who goes to Hogwarts in the 1800s, and you get to choose exactly what type of student you want to be. You get to be sorted into the house. So you might not even be a Gryffindor, for example. You might be a Hufflepuff. Outrage. Outrage. <laughs> My daughter loves Hufflepuff, so she is desperate ah, to be a Hufflepuff. Um, uh, so you, you get to do that. Yeah, there's companions you can pick up along the way. But the most interesting part is the depth of the um, gameplay that they showed. They showed an awful lot of stuff. Not only can you, um, for example, go to classes and learn potions, there's a new threat to the wizarding world um, in the form of a goblin rebellion and a um, what we think is the ancestor of a Death Eater who team up to do bad stuff, basically. And so if you've not... I mean, obviously people are aware of Harry Potter, right? And they're obviously aware of of the Fantastic Beasts and stuff like that. And so it, it taps into all that lore. But from a gameplay perspective, are we kind of talking more Elder Scrolls or are we thinking more GTA V but with with spells? Well, it's a third-person game. It's I would, I would say um, the kind, it reminded me quite a bit of something like um, uh, Dragon Age or Horizon Zero Dawn Stroke Forbidden West. Right. In the fact, it's it looks like a massive action adventure, but the beauty of it is, is that they haven't just restricted it to Hogwarts. You also get to go to Hogsmeade, the local town. There's the woods. There's all of the areas around Hogwarts as well, all of which are under threat by this new um, group of enemies. And you as a student, first you learn all the spells and you get to level up and create new spells and add them to, to the spell list you've got. But you also get to even learn like dark magic and right. stuff like that. So they've expanded it to be able to 
essentially do what everybody's always wanted to do within a Harry Potter universe game, which is essentially build their own student and go absolutely wild with it. And do you think that's, is this a trend that we're seeing? Because, you know, we've seen Elden Rings, which is a massive game that has, you know, it's coming out, it's been incredibly popular. Obviously, GTA series has been incredibly popular. These kind of open world games, they're not new, but do you think this is, A, do you think Hogwarts Legacy will have what it takes to kind of sit amongst the best of them? But also, do you think this starts a trend where we'll see this more from other types of, of, of franchises going forward? Without a shadow of a doubt, I think the words action, adventure and role-playing game now lend themselves exactly to open world. Um, there's an awful, there's actually a bit of a backlash on Twitter about open world games generally, not about Hogwarts Legacy. I've never seen such excitement about a single game that is yet to come out um, as as Hogwarts Legacy. But the uh, there's a bit of a backlash on open world games because we've got... An, there are a hell of a lot of them now, mm. and they can take. I mean, for example, I had to review uh, Horizon Forbidden West and Dying Light 2 back-to-back. Both are open-world games. Both took me at least 80 hours to complete. Which is which is a long time. <laughs> which is a long time, but at, at the same time, great value for money. If they're good games, there's great value for money. But a lot of people would backlash saying sometimes you just want to sit down, you want to play a nice, neat, story-based game that doesn't take too long. Now, the one thing I will say about Hogwarts Legacy and it being that kind of massive open world game, certainly so so it looks, is that if you've got a child of a certain age who absolutely adores Harry Potter, it might be a little bit out of their reach because you have to divert, you know, you're going to have to invest an awful lot of time, energy and play into this game. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it doesn't feel like an Animal Crossing. No, in fact, I would say that they were aiming at like like the, the sort of like teens to higher than that when they were looking at who who to aim this game at. And obviously, Harry Potter's audience is uh, spans from like five year olds all the way up. So, um, so this is definitely at the sort of like the upper reaches. But then, people who watched the films or read the books originally, they're all in their twenties now anyway. So it's possibly not a bad idea. Okay, and finally, uh, is this likely to come out anytime soon? Uh, that's we don't know the exact date, but we do know it's coming out holiday to twenty twenty two. It's it was originally delayed. It was meant to come out last year, but they wanted to put more time and effort into the game. But now we're getting it prior to Christmas this year. I guess September October. Still to come, Luke gives us his verdict on the Insta three sixty one RS action camera. They need their own SD cards and everything, and it's a bit of a faff. Whereas this, you just bring a little cube-shaped module, and when you decide it's time to shoot in 360, you click it on, and off you go, and it's really convenient. The UK government recently announced its plans to include age verification for all pornographic websites as part of the online safety bill, after pressure from charities and other stakeholders. But how does the technology work, and is it a good idea? Wanting to find out more, I recently caught up with Andy Ludlam, Chief Operating Officer at a company called Verify My Age. It's a British startup who helps companies verify people's age online, whether they're buying things or accessing information. I started by asking him to explain how the technology from the company actually works. 
it's, it's possibly not as simple as you think. It's quite sophisticated technology. So we partner with online businesses and I'll, I'll start by giving you a couple of different examples. So we partner with um, eBay, for example, an e-commerce platform who are conducting a transaction with one of their, someone buying an item on their website. Now, through eBay's API, we get past the customer's information. So, for example, their first name, surname, their um, their address, Mm -hmm. their mobile phone number. And we can do what we describe as stealth checks on their age. So that is using that PII. Um, So we'll check their name and address, for example, um, do a soft credit lookup um, on a credit bureau. We can do a mobile phone number check either to see whether their adult content block has been lifted or we can do a check directly with their MNO to check whether that individual has gone through a KYC identity check as part of getting a a credit approved for a contract phone. Right. Um, so, so we basically go through, if, they've, if they're old enough to buy stuff. Exactly. <laughs> if you are old enough to get credit, you are 18 and you've gone through an identity check to, um, to prove that. So we will then do possession on that mobile phone. We'll send a, one, a one-off um, SMS and assuming that the user can prove that they are in possession of that phone by clicking on it, then we will approve that they are over the age of 18. So that's our stealth mode and we can only run stealth age verification checks where obviously there is very little, if any, interaction required by the end user mm. and therefore the lowest possible friction for the online business. However, in the situation where, for example, with that e-commerce platform we are unable to successfully complete a check or if we are working with a business such as a pornography website where that use where that website does not have any PII on their user and is simply implementing an age gate at the front of their site to allow access yeah. then we um, we showcase our non-stealth methods where the user has to actively engage with them so for example they can enter their credit card details and we can do a check on that um, credit card they can also manually enter their um, phone number to go through the same process that i mentioned previously they can use um, they can take a selfie and we can run an age estimation check on their on on their facial i mean that sounds so i just take a picture and it goes, oh, you're looking a bit old. <laughs> Is that, I mean, how does that, how, what do you look for in, in, in those kind of things? And, you know, how does that work? So we actually are an ecosystem. So we partner, um, we're not a deep tech business ourselves. We partner with third-party suppliers um, providing us with best-in-class technical um, solutions. And we, some of those businesses do do 2D checks, as you said, with taking a picture, but the, 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 the more reliable and more accurate tech is actually a video selfie. So it assesses um, your, the sort of your biometric features. So um, we'll find my crow's feet, so to speak. And, and <laughs> well, yeah, we I'm too old. Fortunately, we're not doing this on camera, but with a with sort of you know sort of follically challenged myself, I think I passed with flying colours. But actually, these are very very sophisticated um, 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 pieces of technology, AI technology that have learnt through hundreds of thousands of different images. Um, ground truth images they can learn um, the when they've made the correct decision mm-hmm. and what facial biometric features contribute towards that so for example one of the suppliers or our 
we, we actually now work with multiple AI suppliers on facial recognition um, and use an ensemble um, model to to improve the accuracy of our results. So each of those providers gives us either an age, so you know, 15, for example, or an age range, so you know 18 to 24. And our um, algorithm, our, our ensemble model, spits out a an a an age that is more accurate than any of those individual supplier contributions. Right, because so, you kind you know, of pull from pull from the collective rather than just relying on one specific exactly. company. So so we aggregate and we we give a um, for example, if it's an eighteen um, restrict, age restricted product, we just simply give a binary answer to that website whether that individual is over the age of eighteen or not. But with facial age estimation, for example, we mirror if you go into a, a supermarket and buy a bottle of wine, um, you'll see challenge twenty five um, sort of yeah. script, you know on on a, on a poster next to the till. And what that means is that the shop staff are required to ask you for identification if they believe that you look under the age of 25. So for example, with our product and the, you know, when we integrate um, for the online sale of alcohol, we set the age threshold at 25 to mirror the, to mirror that the requirement thing. in the real world. It sounds, it sounds like you, there's a lot of things you're talking through there. It sounds, there's obviously a lot of data points here and with a world that we live in where people are, are slightly concerned and worried about the data that people store on them uh, and you know where what's available and if that gets leaked and especially when we're talking about porno- pornography sites where you might not necessarily want your name on a database somewhere how how do you go about challenging and and, and combating that fear it's a good question and, and it's one that comes up quite frequently um our technology at verify my age is entirely privacy preserving and i would say that you know, we are not the only age verification solution that would um, that would claim that. All of our all personal information is encrypted and hashed, both at transit and at rest. When we pass information onto a third party business, so um, an adult website, a pornography website, or or an e commerce business, we only ever give them a binary answer, so a one or a zero, a yes, no. Is this person? over the age of 18, 21, 16, whatever the right. um, requirement is. It's 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 also um, worth saying that we are big advocates that age verification providers such as our supplier, such as ourselves, should be independently certified and go through an audit process for which there is one here in the UK, there is one in Germany, there's not currently in France, for example, to make sure that our technology is fully GDPR compliant and that we are in fact operating in the manner that I said in that we do not store anyone's personal information um, and we do not send any personal information to a third party website that we um, that we work with. We very much advocate for a, a world where, you know, the opposite of a wild west, um, we want to be fully certified and fully audited and, and, and we sort of lobby for that in the territories that we work in. And do you find, I mean, obviously I know there's a lot of conversation in the media at the moment, certainly within the UK, about, you know, this pornography bill, for the for the lack of a better word, where it's kind of insisting that all adult sites are age, have age verification on them. Do you, is that really... Is that really the only? I know you mentioned eBay at the beginning, but is that is that really the only sort of real read need for this, or are there sort of times where you need our age verification, which the listeners might think, "Oh, I hasn't thought about that." Well, there's age verification is 
is a sort of use case for um, identity authentication. Um, and it's where a lower level of assurance is required. So if you open a bank account, you go through full KYC, full uh, anti-money laundering checks. That is the That has the highest level of assurance. Um, and, and the methods that are approved for those use cases are typically more stringent than age verification, which is where you still need to prove that someone is of a certain age, but you don't necessarily have to do three different identity checks with full name, address, and identity right. documents. Yes, you can, if that's the preferred method for an end user. However, we are, you know, it, the online world has been very slow to catch up with the um, sort of the real world or the offline um, world. If you think of how difficult it was for when people like myself were growing up to access, you know, pornographic content, it was really quite difficult. Now it's incredibly easy. There, are, You can go onto a pornographic website, and there is either no age verification requirement or a simple um, click a box to confirm that you're over 18. And that is clearly not fit for purpose. However, you're right. Sort of the, I would say the traditional age restricted categories are the ones that would immediately spring to people's mind. Um, alcohol being an obvious one, e-cigarettes or, or e-liquids being another, pornography being another one. But actually, there's we're right on the cusp of what we call internally the sort of regulatory wave where you'll be able to do very few things online without going through some sort of age or identity check and that's not to say for a minute that any of that information would be shared with a social media platform or a image or or PII itself but there has to be some sort of um, audit trail or some sort of um, uh, accountability for a business to know who their users are so another piece of legislation came in um, in September last year, which is um, regulated by the ICO, the Information Commissioner's of- Office, which is called the Children's Code. And that requires all businesses um, where there is a risk of content or they are highly likely to have children um, on their platform to know the age or the age range of their users. So they've they've called out sectors such as social media, online video gaming, um, ed tech. So it's not just about 18 plus, which are the obvious use cases. But for example, if you are playing a video game, there are certain games that are clearly appropriate for um, a seven or an eight year old. And there are some that are clearly not appropriate for a seven or eight year old year old and are only appropriate for someone of 16 plus or 18 plus. And that legislation um, is also related to GDPR and the way that that a business uses an individual's data if they are or if they are over or under the age of yep. um, consent, which is 13 here in the UK. So we also have we call this age assurance rather than age verification um, that we can bracket people in different age groups under 18 as well as give a binary answer on whether people are over the age of 18. So I know, I know, as a, as a company that obviously deals in verif- age verification, the idea of of the adult industry having to use age verification is probably good news for you guys, certainly from the bottom line perspective. But do you agree with what the UK government are trying to do? I personally absolutely do, and I think it's long overdue. And, and as I mentioned earlier, it's been far too easy for far too long for children to easily access pornograph- pornographic material online, not just on pornography websites but also on social media platforms and they are also caught up in this new piece of legislation i think you know parents just need to know that 
you know, in order for children to benefit from all the opportunity and all the positives that the internet provides, they need to, that sort of reassurance that they're not going to be exposed to harmful um, content whilst they're doing that. Mm. And so I'm a big believer in this piece of legislation. Um, it's it's age verification, as I mentioned earlier. It's not KYC. So there are there is a lower level of assurance required. Um, and I think that it's, you know, it, I've, I've got a young daughter myself and I, and I wouldn't want her to grow up in a world where accessing such harmful content is so readily, uh, is so easily done um, as they're, you know, conducting yeah, sure. online experiences. Sure. And I suppose the, the final question I have for you is, is you're obviously, as a company, you're obviously starting to look at AI and how that can be used to help do your job. Um, where do you see it all going in the future. So if I, we would have this conversation in five years time, what, what do you see the landscape and the technology to look like there? Good question. And I think it's increasingly will move to an AI world. I think it's slow to move, um, you know, identity document checks or credit card checks are all um, fairly well established. Facial age estimation is the, I would say the only AI method currently that's, that there's been enough testing, enough data to, um, to validate and substantiate um, that it is as accurate as businesses such as myself will be able to um, will claim that it, that it is. However, we also have other methods that are in sort of R&D around biometrics. So, mm. for example, um, that's voice. Um, we're working with a, a third-party supplier on you know being able to tell um, to a certain level of accuracy through simply listening to someone's voice. Um, there's also another... Um, metric around hand span, so the, diff- the the distance between the end of your thumb and the end of your um, little finger, um, okay. which is uh, I was not aware of, but is a grows very it's very predictable in terms of the speed that that grows from a young age up through to um, a more mature sort of um, um, adult. You know, I'm looking at my hand right now. Thinking, yeah, and, and I was going to say again a, a second reason why it's good that we're not on camera for this conversation. Um, they are the two that are sort of. I, I'm aware and uh, sort of firmly in, in R&D and being progressed quite quickly. Um, in terms of actually, if you sort of move away from age verification to actual um, sort of being able to authenticate or unlock a biometric password, then there's also technology around um, heartbeat. So using something similar to, to what you'd have in a, in a smartwatch, for example, and also going under a sort of fingerprint to a, a sort of, and I'm not an expert on this, so apologies if this is not quite um, the, the right way of explaining this, but a sort of vein network right. um, just inside, just under your, your your finger, which is apparently far more unique to an individual than the actual fingerprint. And obviously less people are, would sort of believe that people are more readily likely to want to share that piece of biometric information than a fingerprint because of its association with sort of criminal and illegal activity. When the Insta360 1R launched back in 2020, it was a camera unlike any we'd seen before. The clever modular design meant that it could be used as a 360-degree camera or as an action camera by simply clicking on a different lens module. Now, a couple of years later, the Insta360 is looking to refine its formula with the introduction of the 1RS. But with GoPro still dominating the market, can Insta360 make an impact? Pogolint's Luke Baker has been using the new camera and joins us to tell us more. So, Luke, what's it like? Uh, yeah, so I've been playing with the One RS for a couple of weeks now. 
Um, and it's, uh, it's very good. It's kind of, it can't quite match GoPro's flagship offerings when it comes to pure image quality. Right. But the versatility and the value for money is like, yeah, on it in its own world. Um, so essentially, for about the price of a GoPro Hero 10, slightly more than a Hero 10, um, you get essentially a GoPro Max thrown into the deal. Um, so you'd have to effectively spend double to get the same versatility wow. from GoPro. That's quite um, a difference. Yeah. And there's also the convenience of not having to carry two separate cameras. You can just carry the camera and a little module so and for, swap them as and when you need. So for people that aren't fully aware of let's let's wind it back slightly. So for people that aren't fully aware of the the Insta One, this is a camera. It came with a, a lens, a body, and a battery pack, is that right? Yeah, so the whole system is it's kind of like little Lego bricks for camera geeks that's a great way to put it it's uh so you've got a battery module you've got a brain of the camera and you've got two lens modules in the in the twin edition box um and you can either use the camera as a traditional action camera like a gopro or you can use it as a 360 um camera by clicking on the 360 module um so it's like a two-in-one transformer situation and that then obviously just that plugs in and and off you go shooting 4k i presume all the yeah so the the main module they're calling it the 4k boost module now um and the old module was 4k as well but they've uh, increased the sensor size and added a few new features um to improve the image quality um and then the the 360 module does 5.7k 360 videos but um that module is actually completely unchanged from the original camera but the really cool thing they've done is they've made everything backwards compatible so if you have the original camera and maybe you're interested in the new 4k boost lens or maybe you're just interested in the um upgraded battery pack which is a bit bigger then you can just buy whichever piece you want and click them together and off you go. Now, you alluded to this slightly at the beginning that maybe the quality isn't as good as a top-of-the-range GoPro. Yeah. Is that the only thing that you didn't like or were there other things that were slightly concerning you? Um, no, there's nothing concerning. Like It's all, it's all very good. Um, it's just that they, they can't quite match the best of the best um so but like i said the the value's there so it's still it's still an attractive proposition um yeah the, the one big downside i suppose is that the screen is very small because right. the screen has to fit onto this little cube shaped module um and it's cool that you can you can flip the screen around. So if you want the screen on the front, then you unclick it and flip it around. Um, whereas on the flagship GoPros, there's a large screen on the back and a smaller screen on the front. So it's the same functionality, but you, you're stuck with a very small screen because of the modular design. And there's not really anything they can do about that other than 
I guess making a bigger module that clicks on or something. And for someone, and for someone that's, that's maybe we've had a GoPro in the past, it's you know, it's getting old. Maybe it's broken and need to think about upgrading. What's the bit that you like the most about this for, from having been a GoPro user yourself for a while? Um, the main thing is just having everything in a small package. Um, like I, I had the original um, GoPro Fusion 360 camera, and that was quite big and heavy. And if I wanted to shoot 360 video and regular action video on in one trip, then I'd have to bring both cameras mm-hmm. with me, and they'd need their own SD cards and everything, and it was a bit of a faff. Whereas mm-hmm. this, you just bring a little cube-shaped module, and when you decide it's time to shoot in 360, you click it on and off you go. And it's really convenient. And the usual question, if uh, if they ask for this back, are you going to be sad or are you going to be, oh, well, never mind? <laughs> yeah, I would be actually because, uh, yeah, it's a convenience thing mainly. Um, it's great that you can stick something so small in your bag and have so many options. Um, yeah, I could see it getting used a lot until... The dreaded days, as they say, can have it back. (laughs) Well, that's it for this week's show. Until next time, thanks for listening. Pip, pip. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.